Thank you, Sam. Well, it's so good to be with you this morning. Uh, if we haven't met, my name is Cassie, and Alex and I get the privilege of leading this community together. Uh, and if you've known us for a little while, or you've been around this community for a little while, you'll know that Alex and I often quote one of our favorite pastors of all time, and that man is named Eugene Peterson. Some of you may be familiar with who he is, maybe not. Uh, if you do know him, it's likely because you've read his paraphrase of the New Testament called The Message. Uh, but more than that, uh, Eugene actually has quite a beautiful life legacy. He started and pastored a church in Maryland, and he was there for 29 years. And I don't know about you, but I look at somebody like that who has a longevity in life and career and ministry, who was able to start something and was able to faithfully sustain it for so long, and I'm like, that. That's what I want to do. He later went on to uh, work. He was a professor at Regent College before he retired, and he's known for many more books, not just the message. So I say all of that to say uh, Eugene was obviously a very intelligent man. His grasp of the biblical languages is something that I will never achieve in my life, and yet his son, Leif Peterson, would often joke with him that he only ever had one message or one sermon. I don't know about you, but I would think someone that intelligent, that smart, that learned would have more content than that. But he says his father only ever had one message and one sermon. And he summarizes this idea well in a poem that he actually wrote about his father and gave in a eulogy after his death. And to start today, I'd actually like to read that poem. His words are quite beautiful. Leaf writes... It's almost laughable how you fooled them, how for 30 years every week you made them think you were saying something new. They thought you were a magician in your black robe hiding so much up your ample sleeves, always pulling out something fresh and making them think it was just for them. And that's just the beginning. There's more. Casual conversations at church picnics, unmemorable chats at the local Denny's over eggs and toast, counseling sessions that saved marriages, maybe even lives, and they didn't know what a fraud you were. They didn't know how simple it all was. They were blind to your secret, only saw the magic, how you performed, how you made the mysterious, the ominous, the holy into a cup of coffee how you made a cup of coffee into an act of grace, how you make God into something that worked for them. It's so funny that they didn't know this. So many times I wanted to expose you, tell them what you had been up to, tell them all what you had been up to, and now you're doing it all over again. You've got this new group fooled thinking you're worth millions. They're painting it on t-shirts, coffee mugs, message pads, a new version every week for some new flock. And I must say this, they've widened your audience. And now you're fooling them all over the world. Churches, schools, homes, and prisons. It's so funny, and only my inheritance keeps me from giving you away, because I alone know your secret. 
I alone know what you've been doing, how you fooled them all, taking something so simple, something a child could understand, and making it into a career, a vocation, an empire. I know, because for 50 years, you've been telling me the secret. For 50 years, you still steal into my room at night and whisper it softly to my sleeping head. It's the same message over and over, and you don't vary it one bit. God loves you. He's on your side. He's coming after you. He is relentless. God loves you. He's on your side. He's coming after you. And he is relentless. In plain terms, Leaf is saying, my dad really only ever had one thing that he said. And that was, God loves you. And I was reminded of this poem this week as I was working on this sermon because I must confess my sermon just felt too simple. <laughs> like I thought about trying to wrap my very simple idea in a beautiful package with a nice little bow of trying to phrase in a way that seemed super profound or earth shattering. I even tried to make it tweetable and then laughed at myself because I don't actually think Twitter exists anymore, question mark. But finally, I decided to just say it plainly, to speak it simply, to try to, not try to not fool you, to deliver this message much like Eugene's son did. And here it is. Jesus wants to be your friend through the Holy Spirit. He likes you, he loves you, and he wants to talk to you. Jesus wants to be your friend through the Holy Spirit. He likes you, he loves you, and he wants to talk to you. And that's the idea that we're going to work to unpack today. So if you would, turn with me to John chapter 14. If you got a physical Bible, if you got one on your phone, that's fine. You can also follow along with our sermon notes. If you go to Midtown Church, midtownkc.church forward slash guide. Uh, but just kind of contextualize us where we're at before we jump into scripture today. This fall, we've been journeying through our sermon series called Come Holy Spirit. And specifically, we've been tracking the spirit through the scripture, starting with Genesis and then hopefully working our way all the way towards Revelation. And specifically, for the last couple weeks, we've been looking at the spirit in the life of Jesus through each of the four gospels. And today, the gospel that we find ourselves in is the gospel of John. And of the four Gospels, John's actually the only one that is not what we call synoptic. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are considered the synoptic Gospels because they share many of the same stories, the same structure. They often happen in the same sequence or order, but John doesn't do that. He's kind of like the black sheep of the family. His gospel contains stories that the other gospels don't contain. It's put in a different structure or order. And he also includes several of Jesus' 
Jesus's discourse on theological matters that the other gospels don't mention. And so briefly to remind you, the structure of John's gospel is as such. So it's in five different sections. First section consists of John's introduction of Jesus. John's introduction of Jesus. This is found in chapter one. So it's that famous, in the beginning was the word and the word was God and he was made flesh and he dwelt among us. Jesus being the word of God made flesh. Jesus is the word. John introduces us to this man who's been around from the very beginning. And then in, in the second uh, section, also chapter two, we begin to see different miracles of Jesus, specifically seven miracles. And these miracles conclude in chapter 12. And then we move on to section three. And this section is the night before Jesus's trial. And this section, this one night actually composes chapters 13 through 17. Just a lot of chapters for one night, okay? That's what we're going to talk about today. And then we move into Jesus's arrest, his crucifixion, his burial, his resurrection in 18 and 20, and then finally the disciples' ongoing mission in chapter 21. And so we find ourselves today in that third section, that night before Jesus is to go on trial, be crucified, buried, you know, died, all those things. And in chapter 13, we see Jesus do something radical. He washes his disciples' feet before the Passover meal. And this act of love actually works to beautifully frame what we're going to learn about today, and that's Jesus's friendship with us, and then his instruction to love one another as he has loved us. And then Jesus prophesies in chapter 13 that Judas is going to betray him, and as a result, Judas actually gets up and he leaves the dinner party early. He says, peace out, guys. I'm not staying. And then Jesus launches into several lessons or teachings that he wants to give his disciples before he is arrested. And so to help us understand the emotions or maybe what was being felt or said in these moments, I want to give a bit of a hypothetical example. So if you would, suspend reality with me for a moment. And I want you to imagine this. You have a child. And for some of you, that was radical. So bear with me, okay? You have a child. You have a child. And they're in high school. This means you're kind of old at this point if you aren't already, okay? So you have a child. They're in high school. They're a junior in high school. And all of a sudden you learn they're going to graduate one year early. They're skipping a grade, they're graduating early, and the two years that you thought you had left with this child, you only have one. And so you're racking your brain, you're trying to think through all the different things that you haven't taught this child yet, like how to manage a budget, how to change the oil in the car, right? How to apply for colleges, how to manage your time, your calendar, all of these things. And you carefully plan out how over one year's time you're going to teach them all of this material. And then plot twist, you have one night. One night to teach them all of that. And I don't know about you, but I would feel pretty stressed. I'd be very anxious. I'd be worried. I'd be like, oh, dear God, just help them survive, right? Just help them live. I hope they can do this well. And I know I'm probably taking some liberties here, but I have a feeling that Jesus may have been feeling some of the same emotions. He had only been with these 11 disciples that he's talking to for three years, that's a short amount of time in the grand scheme of life and friendship. 
And as he's preparing to leave these disciples, he's beginning to think through anything he may have forgotten to tell them, all the important things that they need to remember, and reassuring them, yes, I'm leaving, but that doesn't mean that my help's going away. I'm still going to be around. And this is where we find ourselves in John chapter 14. Jesus is unpacking all of these lessons that he wants to impart on his disciples before he leaves. And we're not going to be able to get to all of them today, but we're going to be able to see a few. So let's start in John chapter 14, verse 15. Jesus says this, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, very quickly, commandments that Jesus mentions here is likely referring to the commandments that Jesus just gave his disciples in verse, or excuse me, in chapter 13. So Jesus tells his disciples in chapter 13, after he washes their feet, you will love one another as I have loved you. So if you love me, you will love one another as I have loved you. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another capital H helper. This indicates that this is a title or the name of a person. I will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world does not receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him. For he dwells within you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also live, and in that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them to love one another as I have loved you, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved for my father, and I will love him and manifest myself in him. So a few things to point out about this passage. The first one is this. Jesus says, I will ask my father to send another helper, capital H, to be with you forever. So depending on your Bible translation, which you've got in front of you, you may not see helper. Instead, you might see capital C comforter, capital A advocate, or capital C counselor, or there are a few others sprinkled in there, okay? And this word is used instead of that word helper because the translation from Greek to English for this word is really, really tricky and hotly debated. Scholars do agree that contextually, helper, counselor, whatever you have here, refers to the spirit, but the function or the job of the spirit, so whether the spirit is a comforter, an advocate, a counselor, that's the thing that's up for debate here. So the Greek word that we have so many issues with is the Greek word paraclete. And in most instances in the Greek language, this word paraclete is used in relation to someone's legal aid in the justice system. And you're like, huh? Yeah, the my reaction and scholars' reactions too, because this contextually does not seem to fit with what Jesus is saying. Doesn't seem like he's referring to the judicial system here. So what might be going on? I think Craig Keener, scholar Craig Keener, probably gives, um, to me at least, the most helpful explanation of this word, and it is this. He views the spirit, the helper here, as a successor or a mediator, to use a judicial term, okay? So a successor to Jesus, someone left behind to take his place and mediate his continued word and work to the disciples. 
This explanation seems to fit best within the context of what Jesus is not only saying here, but in the following chapters. He's saying, yes, I will leave, but I won't leave you as, what? Orphans, right? I'm going to send a mediator from the Father, this spirit, my spirit, the Holy Spirit, to help you mediate between God, right, and then us. Jesus is going to help mediate between God and us through his spirit. And this is a really important theological distinction because when we pray or commune with Jesus, we are actually praying and communing with the Holy Spirit or the spirit of Jesus. We are not directly communicating with Jesus himself. And although this may seem like I'm splitting hairs or drawing unnecessary theological lines, this is very important, and I'm going to tell you why in a little bit. Second thing to notice about this passage, Jesus uses dwelling or manifesting language over and over and over and over again. When Sam was reading the scripture, like, wow, that's really repetitive. Yes, there is a point to that. Jesus says over and over again, I am in you. I'm dwelling in you. I abide in you. I'm manifesting myself in you. And this language, this choice of language is very specific. And it would have actually piqued the disciples' ears. They would have known as studiers of the Torah, of the Hebrew scriptures, that Jesus is using language to bring about the image of the tabernacle or the temple to the disciples' mind. So brief history lesson here. In the time of Moses, God instructs the Israelite people to construct a tabernacle, a place for God's presence, his spirit, to dwell. And then he appoints priests— And he makes sure that they are anointed by God to represent the people in this tabernacle to God. And so these priests would go into the tabernacle. They would cleanse themselves. They'd wash themselves with water. They'd enter the Holy of Holies, and they'd be in the presence of God dwelling with his spirit. And eventually, when the disciples would move from place to place, they'd pack the tabernacle up, they'd take it with them. Uh, But finally, they said, you know what? We're done moving. We're going to construct a permanent thing. That thing is the temple. And that is where God's spirit is going to permanently dwell. And so when Jesus says that he goes to the Father so that he can give us his spirit, which will dwell in each of us, He's saying, you are now a tabernacle. You are a temple. You are the place where the spirit of God dwells. And then Jesus proclaims that if you dwell or abide in me, and if you love one another as I have loved you, then I will be your friend. Let's read it. In John chapter 15, beginning in verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. 
This passage in many cases has been used as some sort of call, nationalistic call to arms or maybe laying down one's life for God and country. And this would actually be a pretty inappropriate application of this scripture because Jesus here is not calling his disciples to give up their life for the country of Rome. He's calling them to give up their life for friends, for the love of Jesus who laid down his life for his friends. He's asking them to lay down their lives for the sake of Jesus's kingdom, one that's far better, more just, more powerful, more loving than any of the principalities in his world or in ours today. And Jesus can make this huge ask because he's about to demonstrate it for his disciples. He's about to lay down his life for not just the immediate friends sitting in that room, but for the whole world. He's about to show us what lengths, what depths, what heights that his love will go to for you. And ultimately, the type of love that then you should have towards others. And then Jesus takes this deep, profound friendship that seems to have a love that I've never actually had to enact before. Like I've never had to lay down my life for one of you or for Jesus. He takes this love and he pushes it. He extends it even farther. When he says, yes, me, Jesus, fully God, I am human now, but fully God, I don't just want to have a subservient relationship with you. This relationship, it's not going to be one of dictator to subject. It's not going to be one of boss to subordinate. It's not going to be one of master to servant. This relationship is going to be friend to friend. And because we're friends, we talk. My spirit will communicate to you what my father is saying and doing. And this is crazy. <laughs> this is bizarre. Because as familiar as we may be with Jesus is my friend type of language, do we really view God that way? Like we view him as so much bigger, so much greater, so far up there, so much better than me. But Jesus says, no, we communicate friend to friend. This is likely why Jesus says in John chapter 16, verse 7, it is to your advantage that I leave so that I can send my spirit to you. In other words, it is impossible for me to do what I just said I'm going to do if I stay here. It is physically impossible for me to stay here and be friends with all of you to be in constant and frequent communication with all of you. Therefore, I need to leave so my spirit can dwell in each of you. I need to leave so I can be friends with all that love me. My physical leaving makes this extraordinary friendship possible. I have often heard it said, and hey, I've said this myself too, that I wish I had been there when Jesus was around. 
Like, I wish I would have been there. It would have been so much easier to have seen him in the flesh and to get him to explain everything to me, right? And although I get this, I think it is a reasonable sentiment, a commonly held belief, frankly, it is wrong. And it's wrong for a few reasons. The first one being this. The gospel suggests that people during Jesus' day did not believe him, denied him, betrayed him, were puzzled by him, and thought he could be certifiably insane. Think about it. They didn't have the context of Jesus' resurrection at all. Secondly, the reason this is problematic is Jesus his willingness to become fully human actually confined his presence. It was limiting. Unless you are a person of Jewish or Arab descent sitting in this room, I hate to break it to you, but you would have likely never met Jesus, ever. And so Jesus' promise to send his spirit makes it easier, not harder, to know him and to be friends with him. And this is a huge deal. This matters a lot. Because in the words of Craig Keener, this means that Jesus still calls us friends. This means that he still shares his heart with us. This means that the Spirit passes on Jesus' words as clearly as Jesus passed on the Father's words in ancient Israel. That is why we should be able to hear Jesus' voice as clearly today as his disciples heard it 2,000 years ago. And since we live in the light of the resurrection, we should understand his message better. This should be easier for us. Jesus says, I will send my Holy Spirit. It's better that I do so, because if I don't, I can't be friends with everyone who loves me. I can't dwell in every single person sitting in this room. If I'm being honest, this truth doesn't seem super revolutionary. It seems like something I've heard time and time again. It seems pretty simple, like pretty foundational to the human, or excuse me, to the Jesus faith. But it is something that I don't think we can lose sight of. That has to somehow become fresh in us again has to continue being the power that pushes us forward, the very thing that resides in our hearts, our minds, and our guts. And it's the truth that Jesus wants to be your friend through the Holy Spirit. He likes you, he loves you, and he wants to talk with you. Worship team, if you want to join me. You know, if Jesus really is our friend through the Holy Spirit and he wants to talk to us, the question is, million dollar question, how do we hear him? How do we hear him? How do we talk with Jesus as clearly today as if he were a friend sitting across the table from us 2,000 years ago? I don't know about you, but I don't wake up to a good morning text from Jesus in the morning. And if you do, 
let's chat afterwards because I have a lot of questions, both theologically and practically. I also have not received an email from Jesus lately, haven't received a FaceTime call, don't have a missed call or a voicemail from him. I haven't gotten the we need to talk message because I did something wrong. I have not heard from Jesus in the mode of communication for which I'm so used to here in the 21st century. I can know in my head that talking with Jesus is central to my faith through the Holy Spirit, but if I'm being honest, at times communication seems mysterious, confusing, not natural, and filled with a whole lot of awkward silence. And so although I don't think I can give every single answer to all of the questions that may be going around in your head right now, I do think that the author John provides a few for us today. John tells us that we can hear the Spirit in Jesus, in the Bible, in others, and in us. That we can hear the Spirit in Jesus, in the Bible, in others, and in us. And I want to break each of these down for us briefly. So one, we can hear the Spirit in Jesus. This may seem like a really strange way to begin how to hear the Spirit, but it is foundational. For the Spirit does not come to testify about himself, but about Jesus. And we know that because Jesus says that in John chapter 15, verse 26. He says, when the helper comes, he will bear witness about who? Me. Jesus repeats this idea again in John chapter 16, verse 14. He says, the spirit will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Hearing the Spirit always begins by encountering Jesus. It begins first by meeting him, by understanding your whole life in light of him. Author Pete Gregg says this, every other way in which God communicates and in which we may therefore hear him speak comes through Jesus and points back to him. Nothing, nothing can replace and nothing matters more than a personal encounter with Jesus. Have you encountered Jesus? And if so, do you keep encountering this person who you fell so in love with? Do you become more and more in love with him every single day. Jesus is the gateway to God's voice and the provider of the Spirit. Remember your first love, for it is through Jesus that you hear the Spirit speak. Number two, we hear the Spirit speak in the Bible. So we hear the Spirit in the Bible. Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 26, that the Spirit will bring our, to our remembrance and explain what Jesus has already said. He will bring remembrance and explain what Jesus has already said. I don't know about you, but if this is the case, I think it probably would be important to know what Jesus said. Past tense. <laughs> And our primary means of knowing what Jesus said, past tense, is the Bible. 
It's his recorded words, the law that Jesus said he fulfilled, furthered. And so the more we know about Jesus from the scriptures, the more prepared we are to recognize the voice of the spirit when he speaks because we know him. We can recognize the voice of the spirit because we have learned who Jesus is. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, it is Christ himself, not the Bible, who is the true word of God, referring to John chapter 1, verse 1. But the Bible, read in the right spirit and with the guidance of good teachers, will bring us to Jesus. Consider the amount that Jesus himself talked and testified to the scriptures. If I want to get to know someone, I learn what they talk about. And Jesus talked a whole lot about the scriptures in the gospels. Specifically, the Emmaus Road is a great example. In this post-resurrection account, this post-resurrection scene, Jesus personally shows up to these two disciples. They encounter him, but then what happens? He opens up the scriptures. It says in Luke chapter 24, verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He taught them about the scriptures in light of who he was. To know Jesus' spirit, the Holy Spirit, we have to study the story that points to, leads to, and climaxes in the person of Jesus. We can hear the spirit in the Bible because it was fulfilled in Jesus. You know, I often meet individuals who uh, may complain or just really out of like a deep desperation be so upset that they have not heard from God in a really long time. And just in some spiritual direction, some talking with them, we discover after a while that, you know, they really haven't spent much time in scripture over the last year. They haven't picked up their Bible in a really long time. And I, please hear my heart, I do not say that to like rebuke you or make you feel guilty or some sort of condemnation, but I do say that as like a warning or a help. I don't want to lean into tired cliches about quiet time, right? But quiet time or times to read the Bible in our regular routine are really important. Orthodox Christianity puts a really high value on the biblical text. We don't just believe it's some sort of auxiliary manual that we consult when we have questions or when life's not going too well. We believe the scriptures are a unified story that lead us by the Spirit to Christ. And I guess my question today is, will you recognize the voice of the Spirit if you don't know much about the person, the teachings, or the character of Jesus? Like, will you be able to recognize it, to know it when it speaks? If you don't know the person of Jesus, if you haven't allowed the Spirit through the scriptures to bring remembrance to what Jesus has said. Number three, we can hear the Spirit in other people. 
Maybe the reason why Jesus repeats his commandment over and over and over and over and over again in chapters 13 through 17 saying, love one another as I have loved you. Maybe the reason he does that is because he knows we need one another. The spirit does not reveal Jesus in a vacuum. The spirit was not just sent to me alone. The spirit was sent to us. And thus we can recognize the voice of the spirit, the friendship of Jesus through the friendship of other Jesus followers. Jesus says, you will know me you know, we will know my disciples by how they love, right? Could be that we actually get to know the nature and the character of Jesus more by demonstrating his love to other people and receiving it in return. I think we can hear the spirit in a gentle challenge with a friend over coffee. I think we can hear the spirit from a mentor who encourages us to do really hard things. I think we can hear the spirit in our microchurch leader as they remind us of God's love for us and reveal the very nature and character of our God. We can hear the spirit in other people. Finally, we can hear the spirit in us. And this may be the most confusing, difficult, challenging, complicated one yet. Like the one that you can't really wrap your brain or your hands around. But Jesus says many times in John chapter um, 13 through John chapter 15, 17, excuse me, that the spirit dwells with us and in us. That he manifests himself in us, just as the Spirit dwelled in the Holy of Holies in the temple. He says that his voice, his spirit can exist in our heart, our gut, and in our mind. And this is not to say that the human consciousness or everything that pops into your mind is the spirit, no. But that is to say that the images, the ideas, the promptings, the actions that are aimed at love of God and love of others are the unmistakable mark of the Spirit of Jesus. What if the Spirit has been guiding your imagination for a long, long time? It's just so familiar, so ordinary that you've learned to turn it out. What if that prompting to pay for a person's groceries is not just some stray thought that popped into your mind, but what if that's actually the voice of the Spirit? What if that prompting to pray for a coworker in a moment is not Christian guilt, but the voice of the Spirit? What if that prompting to turn off the podcast or the music in your car is not a result of sensory overload or exhaustion, but what if that's the Spirit wanting to speak to you? What if we've been missing the familiar promptings of the Spirit because we've been waiting for something extraordinary? or unfamiliar? What if we've been missing the familiar promptings of the Spirit because we're just too distracted to notice or to care? The Spirit is in you. The Spirit is in your heart, your mind, your gut. Listen and notice that He is there.
it's simple. It's so very plain. It may be too familiar, but it is powerful and maybe the only message that we need to hear today, Jesus wants to be your friend through the Holy Spirit. He likes you. He loves you. He wants to talk to you and you can talk with him. Maybe he is even talking to you right now. And my invitation to you today is to let that truth sink into your very bones and to notice what the Spirit might be saying to you right now. Let's pray. God, it annoys me that something that feels so confusing and mysterious and frustrating could have such a simple answer. And I think it annoys me even further when I feel like I can't do something really simple. It annoys me that I can't turn off the distractions. It annoys me that I can't sit in the silence well. It frustrates me that the Bible feels boring sometimes. (laughs) When I know it's the very thing that you loved and adored and used to speak to me. Lord, it annoys me that I forget my encounters with you. That I forget those moments of surrender, of childlike faith and wonder. And God, it annoys me that I do the very thing my soul doesn't want me to do, and that is to isolate. To not make myself available to others who may be trying to say something to me in your spirit. Lord, may the simple truth that you want to be our friend, that you love us, that you like us, and that you are talking and want to talk to us, may that seep into our very bones And may that truth become the reality that we experience more and more day to day in this life. Come Holy Spirit, may we notice your presence, your still small voice, you speaking in the ordinary and in the quiet. Amen.
Thanks for listening to the Midtown Church Weekly Podcast. To find out more or to join a church gathering, check out our website at midtownkc.church.